You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 44. Uh, within this like trove of check-in and information that we can show to our users, we need to pick which ones are the best or more informative. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Oh, I am so excited to jump into machine learning again. It's a machine learning day. Oh, yeah, machine learning engineering day for those of you who are. You know, people are afraid of machine learning. What are these engineers up to that affect our lives day to day and what we see? Well, we're going to figure it out today. Very big response, by the way, to last week's self-driving car episode. I think, yes, it is the largest audience yet for the first week of an episode launch. So... Uh, huge response. Just to recap, in episode 43, we talked about self-driving cars in relationship to the the timeline of technology, you know, over-promising versus under-promising. And I guess in that general subject area, though I don't think we mentioned it, is kind of the hype cycle. Uh, and I think that's because we haven't really seen much of a hype cycle with self-driving cars yet. But we have seen pronouncements from like the optimistic people and the pessimistic people. And so... In our discussions, we don't really take an, well, we do take an editorial uh, view on that, but we also try to give the tools that you need to kind of help, uh, you know, figure out how to think about that. Um, I think if you want to look at hype cycle, like a technology with a big hype cycle would be cryptocurrencies. You know, everybody's up, everyone's going to be a multimillionaire, and then it goes down, and everybody thinks it's dead, and... That's the kind of one where the hype cycle is real and it's, it happens multiple times. And, and that's one where you really have to cut through the news that tends to be emotionally charged and, um, and just kind of push forward in learning about it. Whereas self-driving cars, I think there's a lot less, you know, <laughs> there's a lot less emotional hucksters who are trying to get you excited about self-driving cars or try to get you down about self-driving cars. But there is a lot of journalism out there and there's a lot of pronouncements out there from companies. And so you still do need to, uh, uh, to figure out, uh, you still need to kind of cut through and figure out what to believe. So episode 43, we help you do that. Um, there, are se- there are several other facets to self-driving cars that I want to get into in the future, and a few people have emailed me asking for this. First, there's just the sheer technical challenges posed by self-driving cars. So even before you get into the human challenges, which are, you know, considerable human challenges, always are, the technical hurdles that have been surmounted in self-driving cars are incredible. Image and video recognition for one. And today's interview actually is kind of how we attacked a technical challenge at Foursquare, that of ranking tips, ranking comments that people make on restaurants and other people places using machine learning. So I'll help you understand how that happens on the local maximum. And hopefully we'll we'll cover this on self-driving cars in the future. Maybe I can get someone on the show who works on these self-driving cars. But I know that um, you know. Image and video recognition really is a really is a huge thing, and, and there's other facets to it as well. Um, and the other facet to self-driving car, the other facet to the technology part, the other facet to the self-driving car that we need to cover is kind of the social implications and the people implications. Um, do people want this technology? Where is the market going to go? Or where do they want it, and where do they not want it? Um, let me give a motivating example for that, because. So I've spoken on the show about the 2006 demonstration of multi-touch technology by NYU researcher Jeff Hahn, and this was, you know, 12 years ago, and this was incredible at the time, you know, pinch to zoom on a map or 
pinch out and move things on a screen with your hand. Just unbelievable. And it turns out, you know, 12 years later that most people didn't really want it or need it on their desktop computers and laptop computers. We have it a little bit. Um, you know, the new Apple laptop has kind of a multi-touch thing on the on, above the keyboard and um, you know, but there's, what is that Microsoft one where you kind of push down? So some of them have multi-touch, but we, we're still on a, a mouse and keyboard primarily. And if someone said in 2006, you know, someone stated that fact about desktops and laptops in 20, uh, 2018, someone might respond with, well, that's it. This is an inconsequential technology again. And, uh, that response would be as wrong as you can possibly be with technical breakthroughs because obviously multi-touch is on our phones and our tablets. Toddlers now try to move things on TVs and they try to move things on windows with their hands because like real windows with their hands because they presume that all glass is interactive. So this tech is all around us, uh, just not as we may have predicted. So with the social and human implications of self-driving cars, we can talk about what the use cases are, what it means for ownership, living in cities, living in rural areas. Uh, We touched on that a little bit in our predictions panel in episode 38, so maybe we'll go into a little bit more uh, in the future in 2019. I've been reading your responses to that episode, and... I'll get back to you all, but there have been some requests to cover these other facets of, of driverless, so uh, so yeah, we'll aim, that, we'll, we'll aim to cover that. And I hope that uh, I can find my 2005 coverage of autonomous vehicles that I did with Max and the Wiz at Yale. It was a very brief coverage, but I remember doing it, and I'm really interested in seeing what we said about self-driving cars in 2005. So when I have some time, I'll go through the archive. Most of it is intact, so I hope it's not in one of the lost episodes, but I don't think it is, so uh, that will be really cool. But anyway, back to today's topic. Yes, it's going to be a little bit more on the technical, let's say mechanical side, but we're going to be talking about something that affects every single one of us, and that is how content is ranked online, whether it's through a search or something else. All of our platforms are taking some content in some comments and putting them at the top and others at the bottom or even hiding them. People are very concerned about censorship and they're very concerned about these search engines, you know, uh, uh, making the decisions for you on what you should see and what you what you do see and what you don't see. Um, but uh, I mean, it's it's something that that you have to do when you run one of these platforms um, and the fact that we do it makes makes our lives so much better because we actually get the information that we need. And so the fact that we need to do this, but this can be abused, is kind of a good idea to kind of go in and just kind of uh, look at the mechanics of how it works. And it's also just very interesting from a, a technical point of view, which is why I worked on Foursquare tips for several years and trying to learn how to, you know, how to rank them how to determine whether a tip is saying something good or saying something bad and all that stuff. So I've been doing this for Foursquare apps for a long time. If you have any questions about Foursquare ranking or in general how engineers approach this problem, email the show at localmaxradio.com. To learn more about this topic today, I'm interviewing Enrique Cruz, who presented Foursquare's tip ranking algorithm at the Recommender Systems Conference at MIT with me in 2016. I was there to talk about chatbots. Uh, There's actually a two-page paper, like a conference summary online that I'll link to at localmaxradio.com slash 44. That's our show notes page for today's show. Um, And it's all about this if you want to learn more. 
and we're going to cover the mechanics of it all from top to bottom. Enrique Cruz has been a staff machine learning engineer at Foursquare over the last four years. He is originally from Caracas, Venezuela, and first came to New York in 2010 to obtain a degree in computer science from Columbia University. He's his focus on the industry has been mostly within the realm of search and ranking. Specifically, he specializes in building and deploying machine learning systems to tackle various applied search and ranking problems. So it's great to have Enrique on the program. Hi, Enrique. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Local Maximum. Thanks, Max. Thank you for having me. I, you know, it's great. I, thank you for coming on on such short notice. I, um, you know... I really appreciate it, and we have a lot of really cool stuff to talk about today. Because I know, you know, um, how long has it been since we did like that Rexix conference? Uh, oh, about two years, I think. Two years. Uh, yeah. uh, about the end of my time in the consumer team. Yeah, so I yeah. Think about uh, two two years ago. Okay, okay. And you presented this paper there, right? It was a, a project, and it was a really interesting one. It was a topic that kind of I worked on a little bit as well, and um, a topic that I think my listeners would be interesting. So let's, uh, let's start with the tip ranking project. Um, so why don't, we, why don't we back out a little bit? Let's start with a little bit of background. Let's kind of remind the audience about Foursquare City Guide and what a tip is. Yeah, so Foursquare City Guide is a, a local recommendation gap, a guide that helps our users find excellent food and you know, generally places around them. Yeah. Uh, and once they are considering, you know, maybe visiting a certain venue over another, they can view the venue page. And there we try to present a selection of the best sort of content that our users have left behind. This is what we call tips, which are essentially short uh, pieces of information that our users have left about a venue, uh, given their thoughts about what maybe what's good on the ve- uh, menu, what's good about the venue itself. And sort of like, you know, passing a little bit of information for uh, future individuals who are thinking about visiting the venue. Right. So, like, tips were, I think, have been a part of Foursquare since 2010, if I'm not mistaken. And it was really one of the, I think it was one of our hit features on our on our City Guide app, actually, uh, because it was, um, I, people often compare it to, you know, an online review. Um, but I think there's kind of a big difference between a tip and a review, even like the, the word tip. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like a tip is... Um, Sometimes it's a review. Sometimes it expresses, you know, uh, a, a kind of a sentiment about the place. But sometimes it's just a suggestion um, on what to do when you're there or what to do, you know, when you leave. What do you, what do you find are the most helpful tips, like, when, when you're using the City Guide app? Honestly, the, I, I find the tips that are most helpful are the ones that uh, are usually people saying what their favorite items on the menu were. Right, if you're at a restaurant, right. If I'm at a restaurant, what the favorite item in the menu was, because that makes it real easy for me to, you know, kind of like uh, pre-select some of the items uh, that I should look at. I also, funnily enough, find the tips where people are leaving the Wi-Fi password behind to be very useful. That's been a useful thing since the beginning, and I'm... I'm almost, I'm surprised someone hasn't hooked something up where, at least on Android, where it like automatically ingests these in and sort of just connects you. But uh, we have the next best thing where you can look up the Wi-Fi password. Um, always, always really helpful. Um, if you want to get your Foursquare tip upvoted, that's a good way to do it. Um, okay, so I was really drawn to this project as well. I'd done a lot of work on the Foursquare tips. Um, I spoke on the program to... Um, Chris Conception so, uh, a few months ago uh, about how we do natural language processing on Foursquare tips. So what made ranking an interesting project for you? Well, pick up where we left. So 
there's a lot of content and you know uh, our users are very prolific at leaving tips behind whenever they uh, uh, go to a venue which presents us with an interesting and like a good problem to have which is uh, within this like trove of check-in and information that we can show to our users we need to pick which ones are the best or more informative yeah and the ones that will you know uh, draw more people to these places so this is where tip ranking comes in there are several use cases within the app we're presenting some sort of ordering and being able to distinguish the best tip within a set is a, is a very uh, important uh, use case to solve because you know it, it has a lot of applications within the app. So this is where tip ranking came in. And it was sort of a, a project of trying to come up with a lightweight machine learning model that could work across multiple languages to sort of give a, uh, a content agnostic way of uh, sorting the tips to present it to the users. It's always interesting in talking about all the multiple languages. And for that, I would uh, link to users to episode two with Maryam Ali. Okay, so um, let's, uh, why don't we just go through it then? What's the basic strategy that you use to rank tips in Foursquare? Sure. So the first uh, challenge that we presented was sort of like trying to come up with a, a reasonable set of labels or a ground truth ordering. In the past, uh, there had been a few different approaches. The two, you know, the, the two naive ones that come to mind were sorting things by recency. That is putting the most recent tips at the top. So the ones from November 2018, those will be high up and all the tips from 2012 are kind of buried. Right. So that uh, has its own benefits, which is, for example, it uh, makes the content in the venue page look fresh. Right. It showcases the fact that we have a very active user base that are continuously de delivering content. So sorting by recency uh, showcases that and it makes the community, you know, seem as lively as it really is. Yeah. However, there's no guarantee of quality. The other approach that's been tried, and I believe it was the one that was used by default in uh, our venue pages and other, and other places, was uh, sorting by popularity, which had the benefit of guaranteeing that you know uh, a reasonably good and interesting content was going to be showcased at the top. Yeah. The problem with that is and, and that, that, that that's done through upvotes, kind of like a, a Reddit system. And now we have downvotes, which I, it would be interesting to use. Uh, we I don't think we had downvotes at the time when we were doing these projects, did we? No, not at the yeah. time. That would have been anyway. Sorry, go ahead. But <laughs> so the other sort of like candidate for labels was using the popularity or how many times a tip had been liked. Yeah. The issue with that was that even though it did correlate with uh, interesting content, it tended to prefer old uh, tips that had been uh, there for a while. They had been at the top of the venue page uh, for a long time, so users had been seeing them. They had been exposed to that tip a higher number of times than usual. Right. So they had collected a lot of likes over time, and there was kind of like an encoded bias in that order. Yeah, and sometimes it's a good thing. And like a joke someone made in 2010 just uh, got up there by an initial set of users, and it stayed up there. And maybe it's entertaining, but um, yeah, it also kind of makes the app, it kind of gives the impression that, that no one's using the app if something from 2010 is always on top. Yeah, it definitely makes the community feel stale. It also, you know, tends to prefer old content and in the case of a joke you know that might be fine because uh, the joke is still funny uh, three yeah, or four yeah. years later but if you're uh, referencing could, could, could a dated yeah yeah <laughs> if you're referencing a menu item that's no longer there or a wi-fi password that's no longer valid that really sort of like decreases the quality of that content yeah. but it might just have a a critical mass of likes that's being accrued over time that's sort of like keeps it there at the top of the, the venue page yeah so we wanted to come up with a more sophisticated ordering that kind of like uh tried to combine a lot of different attributes uh, 
of them, including recency, uh, the popularity, uh, as well as maybe other things related to the author, like how how trustworthy the author might have been, how prolific he was, maybe things related to the the uh, you know tastes that are present within the tip. So like yeah, the, so so those are are those are kind of like menu items. I, yeah, I try to correct. explain. I try to explain to people what they. Are. I've probably explained tastes about five times in this program. I think I explain differently every single time. But uh, yes, those are those are like. Things at the place. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> other, other factor that we wanted to weigh in was sentiment, which, uh, you know, Max actually had uh, worked on in the past and developed yeah. a model to detect the sentiment within a tip. So yeah. that was an interesting uh, factor to also, like, weigh in when showcasing, uh, you know, tips. Uh, but circling back to sort of, like, the approach we needed to... We, we knew we wanted to combine all of these, like, multifaceted uh, strategies to sort tips. Right. But we needed to sort of, like, uh, acquire labels in a way that was reasonably unbiased uh, that we could use as our ground truth for what tips were better. Yeah, okay. So let's... Um Let's explain to the uh, for for the audience. Um, what do you mean by ground truth? Like, wh- why is that important in a project like this? Well, in machine learning in general, we're trying to sort of like uh, use algorithms to learn the statistical distributions of certain like features or scores. In this case, it's going to be the popularity of tips or the the time a tip has been present. Yeah. Or basically, certain numerical or categorical attributes about an entity and find the op or learn via machine learning the optimal function that maps these attributes to a right prediction. That yeah. can be a ordinal prediction or a categorical prediction. Right. That being said, in order... So in this case, it's... Well, in this case, it's it's ordinal because we're, we're ranking them. But Correct. But it, it could also be a number. I want to give a tip a score, and then that's the ranking too. Exactly. So yeah. in this particular case, we knew sort of what the inputs that we wanted to try and leverage in our ranking were. Uh, as I mentioned, popularity, recency, uh, tip, uh, uh, the author's trustworthiness. Yeah. All these numbers we can use. But Exactly. But we needed to provide the machine learning algorithm with a set of things to learn. This is what we call the ground truth. Right. So, so in this particular example, uh, we were using a tip-wise, a pairwise ranking approach. So we, uh, our ground truth was to provide the algorithm with pairs of tips uh, with all these uh, numerical features that we described and sort of uh, tell the algorithm which of these two tips was a better one. Right, and so you would have your your training examples would look like tip one, tip two, and tip two is better. So a good example would be if tip one was, you know, um, I tried the pea soup and it was a little salty, but this, uh, but the... Uh, other kind of soup was was really delicious, and another one would just be you know a monkey banging on the keyboard, which some of the tips look like I've uh, I've seen. So yeah, yeah. So, so, so there are, there are very stark ones, but there are not so stark ones. Some so, of the tips are yeah. also spam. Some of yeah. the tips have links as, and stuff. So there's all this uh, sort of like attributes that we can extract from the tip that might indicate whether it's good or not. But we at the end of the day we needed to correlate those attributes with uh, a judgment of whether the tip was good or not. Yeah, so who, how did you come up with those judgments? That's Excellent. always, that's, that's one of the keys when, when always doing these projects. Yeah, so there's a, sort of like a couple of uh, hurdles or challenges that we need to overcome when collecting these judgments. One is that we want the scale of the data to be sufficiently large enough such that we can learn a, uh, a reasonably fitted function that is not sort of like uh, overfitted. 
I'm sure Max might have discussed overfitting in yeah. this podcast in the past. That's me. So <laughs> uh, I won't go into it, but we need to collect enough data that we can learn the nuances of the distribution without overfitting to the, the certain judgments that we are using as our training data. Um, we want the data to be varied enough, again, to combat the biases. Right. You want to you have rank, ranking on lots of different types of tips. Um, and is there is there a model for every language or uh, no uh, no because the popularity scores and the recency scores are actually language agnostic okay correct yeah, same like so. presence of a link is language agnostic presence right. of a photo the length of the total tip right right so right. in order to sort of like reduce the engineering yeah. effort for this project we went with a lot of attributes that would, yeah uh, and even even sentiment the sentiment score is it's that has a lot of different models but then there's one score at the exactly. end exactly yeah. Um, yeah. So. So okay. So, but you, you, in order to get this training set, um, this ground truth, you had to um, you had to label a bunch of tips. How oh, did you yeah. do that? So we had to collect a lot of labels at scale and have the labels be reasonably accurate. Okay. So we had a trying to go back into our own data. You know, there was the initial idea of maybe using past likes as labels. The issue with that is uh, yeah, as so I mean, it's always a good idea to try to find training in your own data, but it doesn't always work. Yeah, so. that's all, that's the quickest and cheapest approach because it means we already have the labels in our data. We don't have to go and collect or generate new labels. So it's a reasonably quick way to get started. The issue we'd had there was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, our likes had, uh, had encoded a bias in them because we had been sorting by popularity for a long time. Yeah. So yeah. generally there was a self-fulfilling prophecy where tips that were already liked were gonna be liked more. So we really didn't wanna use that as a label and we try we wanted to sort of like strat, start from scratch to to get rid of that uh, historical bias. So anytime you have a label that's like if if you're collecting data that's like it's based on the the interface essentially of the of the application like we we were kind of pushing people into liking certain tips and that i guess the lesson there is that that usually doesn't make very good ground truth yeah and uh there's all sorts of uh approaches to combat that that's where active learning comes in where you can you know uh actively mutate the sorting of a, of a given static content so that you can give new content uh, a likelihood of being shown uh, yeah. such that we can start learning on it and see if it's actually good or not rather than always preferencing content that we've uh, received uh, judgment on before. Adding a little randomness to the system. Yeah, that way, exactly. Anyways, going back to the approach we did, we uh, crowdsourced our judgments. So we sampled a lot of uh, popular venues with a significant amount of tip content, and we generated a lot of tip pairs. Uh, then created sort of a, a, a judgment uh, case where we would uh, show the two tips next to each other with as much content as possible about the venue to make it as similar as the experience that our users in the app would uh, would see. And then we would present these two tips to uh, judges throughout the world in a crowdsourcing platform called Figure 8. Okay. Uh, and they would then simply select one tip or the other and decide uh, which one was better. We would then present those same judgments uh, a bunch of different types, uh, different times to a lot of different individuals until we got a statistical agreement on which of those two tips was better than the other. Now, it's always one of the 
tough things about this is this is asking which tip is better is very subjective. And so how specific were the instructions that you gave people? That's a good question. So this, the, we try to strike a balance between specificity and sort of like freedom uh, within the instructions. I believe the wording was something along the lines of uh, if you were considering attending a venue and this was sort of like the piece of information supplied to you while doing your research, which of the two tips would you consider more useful in like your judgment to whether decide or not? Are some of those, I feel like some of the, sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes like you have two tips that are just, yeah, they're both useful pieces of information. It's sort of hard to come up with a good, um, a good rating. Did, did you find that people had, had kind of trouble doing that sometimes? Yeah. So there were, as I mentioned, we fortunately we didn't just like uh, take one judgment on a tip pair as yeah. the absolute ground truth. We uh, sort of re, uh, showed that uh, pair of tips to several judges for them to tell which tip was better. See, and there were cer certain okay. pairings that we got a strong signal, and you know, with seventy five percent likelihood, they will always select one tip over the other. There were other uh, pairings where uh, it was unclear which was better which for us that symbolized that that was not good training data. So we sort of removed those cases where the judges were unbilling or, or so, unsure. So you kind of looked for the ones that were probably the more obvious ones where people sort of agreed to each other. And so it sounds like you let them be pretty free on the subjective side. Like you told them uh, you didn't give them very specific instructions where like, well, if one gives a menu item and another one gives a commentary on the service, then you have to vote this way. You weren't, you were, you were much more free in terms of how they can set up their personal rules like that, but you wanted um, kind of confirmation across yeah. a wide variety of people? Exactly, because if we, you know, if we are precising the instructions to that point and say, okay, the one, if you see a tip with a menu item that is better in your rubric, we're just basically instructing the judges to encode sort of that information into a label. So at the end of the day, the algorithm is going to prefer tips that have many items in them, but it might not be because the real users would have preferred them. It is simply a reflection of us or like instructing our judges to, to factor that in. So our idea was to try and not bias our labels, uh, sorry, not bias our judges uh, in any way possible and just show them the two tips, give them sort of like the use case that our, uh, one of our users is going through and try to present both tips with as much context and similarities as one of our users would see it in the app. That yeah. way the judges would experience the tips uh, similarly as a user would. So with this, what I mean is like we wouldn't just show the textual content to the judges. If the tip in the app had a photo, we would also include the photo for the judges to see. If uh, you know the tip uh, came from a trusted source like Eater, the judge would also see the, the trusted source like Eater to see if that uh, had an impact on how the judge would, uh, would yeah. perceive the tip. But the judge could decide whether Eater is good or bad for them. Correct. Yeah. yeah. But we, we tried not to instruct the judges in either way. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So I could see why uh, this would be really an interesting thing for the Recommender Systems Conference. Um, we did get a lot of people coming up asking questions in the poster session, if I remember correctly. So there was a lot of... Uh, there was a lot of interest in this because this is this really kind of gets to the heart of of content rating. So okay, we've got our training set, uh, we've got our judges, we're all set up there. So now, uh, when it comes to machine learning, I think now we're ready to talk about 
what algorithm you used? How did you uh, how did you actually how did you actually get the machine to learn and build a model off this? Yeah, so we we tried a couple uh, we tried a couple of approaches. Now now that we had our training data and uh, sort of our features, we tried a couple of uh, different libraries. I believe uh, it was a couple years back, back, but I believe we ended up uh, using an algorithm called Ranklib, uh, okay. which is a support vector machine for for generating rank orderings. And we use the pairwise uh, functionality of that library. Uh, All right. I'll, I'll put this on the show notes page for those of you who are in the market for a new machine learning algorithm. Yeah, it's a great as an academic library. It's open yeah. source for anybody to use. Uh, I think be, uh, we try Ranklib, uh, another one called SVM Lite, uh, and some tree... Some, uh, Maybe gradient, like a random forest type yeah, thing. Yeah, some random boosted, forest type uh, things. But at the end of the day, we landed on the, the rank live SVM using the pairwise approach. Uh, Do you remember why you chose that one? Was it all accuracy? Was it all like, um, was it all based on the metrics, or was, was there a factor of like ease of productionizing or something like that? Oh, so it was uh, mostly based on the metrics. Yeah. But it was also based on the interpretability of the model. Yeah. Because um, uh, this wasn't a very complex falling chunk to learn and. Uh, Ranklib SBM had the sort of like flexibility to fit a linear function to a model and just spit out a bunch of coefficients rather than having to build a full-fledged uh, decision tree. Uh, and at the time, there was a uh, sort of like a product consideration that we wanted a model that was uh, easy to tune after the fact. So if, uh, you know, there was a... Um, the product team decided that we wanted to put our thumb on the scale and overweigh recency to sort of like increase the freshness of our community. It was easier to do with a bunch of linear coefficients and just a, a coefficient that we could just increase versus having a decision tree, which is basically not not really tunable after the fact. Right, so it gave us more control in terms of what the, what the ranker does to the tips, um, even if that's not the, you know, that's not the output of your algorithm. You can, you know, sometimes you want to override what the, uh, what's learned from the judges like maybe we want to be biased towards recency or maybe maybe there's some bias that the judges have that we want to undo or something exactly. like that so it was yeah. just a way to to productionize a, a more easily tunable setup yeah so we got this on the app i think when you uh if you use foursquare swarm you check into a place the tip that's picked is based on well some some personalized stuff, but uh, also on our tip ranking algorithm. Um, it's used in the Foursquare City Guide app. And you, you launched this, and you had some successful A-B tests with this. Um, am, am I correct there? Yeah. So um, one of the things that I found you know, very enticing about this project when I jumped into working with it is that uh, tips have a lot of uh, use cases within the app. So yeah. that meant that there was a lot of uh, clear applications for this model to be plugged in and also clear ways for us to measure the impact and success that the model had. So like you mentioned, we ran a few A-B tests in each of these separate uh, use cases to see how, how the new model performed compared to the previous sorting that was being used. Amongst these use cases, one was uh, you know the classic, you go into a venue page, you're thinking about going there, and there's a list ordering of tips. The way we evaluated this was uh, we uh, changed the, obviously, A-B tested one uh, ordering of tips uh, with the old model and a new ordering with the new one. And then we try to see uh, measure both user interactions, so likes on the new tips, 
as well as uh, search engine referrals, which are sort of a proxy of uh, freshness of content, quality of content, and as well as the length of time that people uh, stay within a page. And we notice, uh, I forget what the exact numbers were, but we noticed a successful lift in uh, the metric we were tracking. Yeah, yeah, I think it was, um, it was just interactions and clicks and things like that. Correct. So, and, so, and so it is measure. You can you can actually measure these things, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, um, one of the other use cases for yeah. the app, which I think was an even clearer A/B test, was a. Uh, uh, a big part of the Foursquare app is the Pilgrim technology, which consists on, uh, as you move around your day, we want to be the friend in your pocket that knows the places that you visit. And if we ever, ever detect that you, for example, are stopped at a Chipotle, we want to try and select, uh, first of all, know that you stopped at the Chipotle. Yeah. And second, look through the content that we have at that Chipotle, select a tip and provide you with a valuable piece of information for the venue that you're currently located at. One of my favorite ones is the one with the Ikea where someone got a ping that said, um, you know, if you want the hot dog right away, you could always enter through the exit door and get it first. And I, I always thought that was an interesting one. Yeah, so that's a, a excellent, you know, feature for the app that really showcases the Foursquare magic because it needs to know where you are, first of all. And second of all, it needs to select a, you know, a great piece of content to showcase. And the content selection part is where the tip ranker comes in. In this uh, case, that you example that you mentioned, after the person, you know, after we know that someone stopped at IKEA, we need to select that tip to show to a user, and that's where tip ranker comes in. And uh, we show this uh, tip to a user, and the user generally clicks on the tip and checks into the venue. We call this the check-in reminder pings. Uh, so this was another A/B test uh, or another. Uh, kind of like a nice environment for us to run an A-B test where we could use the old sorting to power the tip selection for our, uh, you know, checking reminder pings, or we could use the new tip ranking algorithm. Uh, yeah. So we tried that and we ended up getting a significant lift in both click-through rate on the pings that we sent, as well as an e increase, a general increase in user activity and retention. Because... Uh, these pings that we send to people when they go about their days are a great way to bring users back into the app and re remember, remind them of the value that Foursquare has to offer to them. Yeah, yeah. So it's been really great for in terms of product development. I wanted to ask this, this, this last question, which kind of takes us out of maybe stuff that we think about at work, but kind of brings it into the whole, you know, what's, what's in the news these days. Because there's been a lot of chatter in the last few years about kind of bias in search engine and bias and content recommendations. Um, Facebook and Google, uh, well, Google in particular likes to think of themselves as a kind of neutral dealer of information, but in practice, maybe they're not. Um, did, did you experience, while well, working with tip ranking um, at Foursquare, any content ranking at Foursquare, did that kind of change the way that you think about the issue of, you know, generally how search engines work? And when someone says, you know, a search engine is biased or someone says, you know, um, a search engine isn't doing a good job. Has it, like, changed the way that you, you think about that? Like, if you're at a bar and, and your friend asks you about that, what would you say? So I would say the answer, the answer is mixed. In the, it is working with, uh, you know, machine learning and content ranking has definitely made me aware of, uh, of biases in the data. And, you know, it, it is something that I have to look out for in my day-to-day. -day. Uh, I know that uh, whatever... 
you know, the the machine learning algorithms are naive and they're just going to try to optimize uh, whatever signal is there in the data. And if the right. data happens to showcase certain biases, the machine learning model is going to pick them up. Uh, to the other side of question, we don't deal with the sort of biases that Facebook and Google are encountering, especially yeah. not the sort of like political biases and that sort of thing. But we deal with other sort of biases. Uh, you know, a very simple one was the popularity bias that we were mentioning earlier of like tips that were shown and liked for a longer time tended to be ranked at the top. So it's kind of like a cycle. But there's other, you know, there's all other sorts of biases in the data. And why the, while they might not be political, such as the ones that uh, Facebook and Google are fighting right now, we do try to fight uh, biases in our machine learning models in different ways. Yeah, that's a good answer. I feel like we are luckier here in that we could do it in a less, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say, like a, a less charged environment, <laughs> maybe. Um, but, uh, but yeah, really cool project. Thanks for coming on and talking to us about it. Um, let's see, we can talk about some other stuff. What are you, what are you working on now? What's your current uh, project? Uh, so this was a couple years ago. I, I hear I hear you're working on some pretty neat stuff. Yeah, so uh, since then I've uh, moved on to what we call here the Pilgrim Data Team. I've been working on a project called Venue Search for the last two years. Uh, and that's basically the machine learning pipeline that uh, powers the Pilgrim engine I mentioned earlier. Yeah. So in order to provide that use case where we know where a user goes and we are able to deliver content and value to you based on the places you visit, we need to solve a couple of uh, data challenges. First off, we need to uh, transform a stream of location data points into a decision of whether you, you're stopped or, or not, where you're visiting a venue. After we know that you're visiting a venue, we need to transform location signals that we scan from your phone. That can be latitude, longitude, uh, the time of day, the Wi-Fi signals available to a phone, your past history, all that fun stuff, and try to make a prediction as to what is the most likely venue that you're currently located at. Yeah, yeah. I wanted, um, I actually kind of want to do a whole show on, on K-Nearest Neighbor, which we you know, use heavily in this algorithm. Um, what sort of, what are your biggest challenges on that so far? I mean, that's, um, you know, that's also heavily machine learning oriented. But Yeah, so uh, glad you mentioned Ken and would be, always be happy to discuss about it more. And yeah. is a, yeah. uh, so KNN algorithm is a core part of our models, is in fact our most powerful feature. And yeah. it's sort of a, uh, a non-parametric way for us to try and understand the places that, uh, uh, sorry, the, the the shapes and locations where a venue lies. Yeah, like yeah. I said, I think we do a whole show on that. But essentially, we're trying to learn, you know, the the shapes of different venues. And rather than kind of ranking something as, uh, you know, this is a good tip or a bad tip, we're saying, hey, how many millions of venues are there in our database? You know, which one are you actually at? Like, which are you actually at this Starbucks? Or are you at the, uh, um, you know, are you across the street in the in the park or something? Yeah, you know, so, so it's, it's and some of these things have very complicated shapes, and um, it's it's not at all like drawing shapes on a map. I mean, be, you know, because um, the phone signals just bounce everywhere, and no, and there's always a noise. There's uh, there's noise associated with your phone signals. There's noise associated with the pri previous check-in data that we're using to train on. So the prediction there's always a, a 
you know, a uh, margin of uncertainty around the prediction. So we can only ever say with a certain likelihood or where we think you are. We can never be fully sure, but, you know, we can assign a, a probability to each of the venues in our database and say, okay, given this context that we're observing right now, which is the most likely venue that you're located at. Yeah. So it's essentially yeah. a, you can think of it as a, a very large multi-class classification problem where there's millions of classes to the side and we're classifying what venue does this context belong to. That's crazy. That's like a, 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 um, a million way classification problem to think about it that way. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> but that's, I guess what we're doing. Um, all right. Uh, let me know if there's anything else that you want to say. Uh, actually, this is the part in the program where I let you plug things. If you've got uh, a Twitter handle you want people to follow or a, a link you want people to go to or just uh, just a plug for Foursquare in general, you could do that. Also, uh, also, let me know if there's anything else to say. So I'll, I'll take the opportunity for a plug for Foursquare. Uh, you know, we, my team and in general, the all teams are working very interesting stuff here. We're always looking for talented, bright minds to come and join us. And uh, there's uh, fun and challenging problems to solve here. All right. Awesome. Enrique, thanks for coming to Local Maximum. Thank you for having me, Max. It's, it's a pleasure talking with you. All right. That does it for today. If you like this discussion, don't forget to, uh, first of all, leave us a five-star review, but also check out my interview with Stephanie Yang on Foursquare's rating system in episode three and Chris Conception on natural language processing on Foursquare Tips in episode 23. Oh, and don't forget uh, Dennis Crowley on episode seven who started the whole thing. Uh, if you listen to all these episodes, you'll be an expert in this stuff in no time. Also, Mariam Ali in episode two with the different languages. I hope to have her back on soon. Our guest schedule is in flux, but everyone I promised is still in the cards. So when you're traveling to your holiday parties, remember that you can listen to The Local Maximum and make the maximum use of your time. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.